I uh, brought my laptop up here for a minute. <coughs> this little bad boy is a couple of years old now. <laughs> As am I. <laughs> it struggles to keep up some days, like most computers do. You know, every now and again you just want to throw them. I fortunately only have to use this for about two or three functions a week now because my iPad does much more. But it's really inconvenient to replace computers. To upgrade this means a couple of days of adding programs, swapping data, getting it all hooked up the right way it needs to operate just so you can kind of feel familiar after a couple of days to get it on track. So to avoid that grisly end of replacing it, I know I've got to do it to keep this thing as sharp as possible. I've got to do a few healthy things, uh, regular things to keep this thing healthy. It needs virus scans because there's some nasties out there, right, on the, on the interwebs. It needs occasional defragmenting. It needs disk cleanups. And it needs to stay as far away from Windows 10 updates as possible. <laughs> from time to time, I delete lots and lots of files. But I often forget to empty the recycle bin. And we all do it. I was on that computer on projection this morning just putting my PowerPoint up. There was like three and a half gig of stuff in the recycle bin in that thing. Although I've deleted files from everyday use, the files still have a presence on the hard drive. It's a safeguard. You know, if I deleted something accidentally, well, I can get it back. If I need to revisit something, well, it's there for safety. But if I don't clean it out now and again, it can get a bit problematic. It's like, where's all my space gone? It's all in the recycle bin. I'll come back to that idea in a moment. Today, we're continuing our series, Be Holy. We're reading from chapter 16 today. I'll give you time to open up your Bibles. Uh, chapter 16. In the last few weeks, we've looked at a number of laws around things being considered clean or unclean. Food, bodily functions, childbirth, household cleanliness, skin conditions, that sort of stuff. One scholar called that part of the Bible, <laughs> those few chapters, <laughs> the most dismal part of the Bible. It can be a bit of a drag reading through those things. But we see that God is clearly concerned about all aspects of our lives and the unclean things that can pop up and render us less than the holy people that we're supposed to be. Even in the case of something as simple as mould in the bathroom, we can see principles for our lives today. For example, mould grows in the moist, dark and often uninspected places, right? We could ask that of ourselves. What's hiding in the dark corners of our own lives? What are the things we kind of turn a blind eye to that are growing unhealthily? 
that might make us fall short on the holiness spectrum we're supposed to operate from. But all those chapters are behind us now and today we get into something really exciting. Chapter 16, and we're going to read a selection of verses from this chapter. And I'll start at verse 1 for us. And uh, you can read along on screen or on your devices or Bibles if you have them. Verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. Verse 5, from the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord and be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household and he is the slaughter of the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his fingers seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. 
He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed to the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it in the wilderness. The last verses, verse 29. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you. Because on this day, atonement will be made for you, to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest. And you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. This passage starts with a room. The room in the red circle there. We're all over the tabernacle in this passage, but there's a specific part of that location that gets the most attention here. It's a a space a little bit bigger than a boxing ring. Nine metres by nine metres is what we're talking about here. It's a very small space. And it is called the most holy place. Some of you might know it as the Holy of Holies. It is separated from the holy place where the priest did regular work. Separated by a curtain, beautifully embroidered, very clearly marked, very clearly noticeable. And inside that room, it's the Ark of the Covenant. The gold encased storage place of the Ten Commandments and a number of other items. And for 364 days of the year, this room remains completely off limits. Apparently, Aaron has learnt this the hard way already. It was his two sons who were spoken of at the start of this chapter and in chapter 10. These are the guys who are said to have offered strange fire and died in the process. Now, a modern movement of cessationist preachers suggests strange fire is what defines charismatic gifts today. I'm only growing in growing disdain for that viewpoint. But in this passage, the idea rounds out. It looks like Aaron's boys thought they could peek around the curtain even though they were the wrong people to be doing that. So God makes himself very clear here for the sake of no more casualties. Aaron, and he's addressing Aaron here, you, the high priest. Aaron, the most qualified, the most sacred and set-apart human of your people and the world. Even you, Aaron, can't just go poking around that little space anytime you want. Because this is a deeply symbolic room. If the people are subjects of their redeeming king, and the tent of meeting is built with all the trappings of a mobile palace, then the most holy place is the location symbolising the throne room of their God. 
And the people knew from Egypt that you don't just rock up to a human throne room unannounced or unprepared. And this was especially the case when you consider their holy and righteous king who is God. But once a year, something significant takes place in that room. God gives permission for one man, one significantly authorised and deeply prepared man to enter that space. And God does this to initiate a moment of intense favour and grace for the sake of the whole people. You see, this is the one time in the year where the glory of God that is over the tabernacle, the pillar of fire, the cloud, now comes to take a seat in the throne room. This single moment is the closest point of heaven connecting with earth, where the glory of their God, their creator, their king, their redeemer, comes and concentrates on this nine by nine space. And he takes his place over what is called the atonement cover. If you've been around church a bit, you'll probably know this better as the mercy seat. It's the gold cover over the ark. It's a space between the two angelic forms. And the ark containing the law of the Lord becomes a throne for just a day. gives perspective when people tried to touch it and therefore died, right? gives perspective for the conditions the Levites had to go through to carry the thing. And when the king takes his place, the nation have a day to hit the reset button on everything. This is the day where Israel empties the recycle bin. It clears the hard drive of every sinister thing. The idea here is that although there were regular sin offerings made throughout the year, human nature dictated that not everything would be atoned for. As clean as the people tried to be as they came to the tabernacle, the fact that they were they the fact was they just still brought uncleanness to the scene. It was just on them and in them. And the priesthood was not even slightly less immune for this. There were simple things done in a state of being unaware. Perhaps you would touch something unclean on the way there. Perhaps you had your mind on other things in the middle of your offering. Some days your offerings were probably a swing and a miss. I mean, imagine imagine just some of the things that we probably fell short on just getting ready for church today. Imagine what sort of unclean things we might have gone to in our words or our thoughts or our deeds, even this morning, you know, just you know, yelling at our spouses or, or getting angry unnecessarily at something or being rude to the McDonald's drive-thru because they're taking too long in your coffee or all sorts of different things that can kind of sneak in and taint 
that moment as we try to come before our holy, righteous God. The long story short, no matter how many sacrifices you made, sin was still a monkey on your back personally and on the back of the Israelites, of the nation. And God's palace was the last place you'd want to see residual sin stinking up the place. There would be deleted files all through the year, but the recycle bin was piling up. So this is why God decreed a day of atonement. A sacrifice and series of distinct actions that would clean everything up and fellowship with God would continue. An arrangement of fellowship that God clearly wants to continue, which is why he is setting these things out. Because he wants us to stay in fellowship with him. But at the same time realise his holiness in doing so. And as you would imagine by now, this called for specific actions and a posture. There is no time to to cover everything in detail. We'll be here for hours today, but I'm just going to address a few of those things here today. First, we have the attitude of the high priest. There is a call here first to clear everyone out while the priest alone did business with God. Over time, we're told in Jewish tradition that they developed a seven-day process to build the high priest up for this process. We know that the father of John the Baptist was actually doing this task when God spoke to him about the conception of John. There is also some vague writings to tying ropes around the waist of the high priest in case he died in there. Shows up in ancient writing. We see that he washes, and that makes sense given what we've seen already in the process of coming to God. And to enter this room, he actually has to get rid of any clothing that he's been wearing. Why? Because one, it's been... It's been all sorts of other places. If you're going into God's throne room, you can't wear clothes as being anywhere else. And second, he had to be dressed in a way that was nothing more than a mere servant. The robes and the priestly garb disappeared. And he had to get back to Mere humanity. And fortunately, there was a linen outfit set aside for this purpose. A servant's uniform declared sacred in order to come before God their king. This is a posture of humility and a posture of what we call kenosis. A place of knowing where he stood and a place of emptying out of anything that made him something in his own eyes. And only then could he enter. And only then could he do what he was called to do. On this day we have the community, all the people around the camp. 
And their posture is to be one of doing absolutely nothing. All work is to cease on this day. All pleasurable pursuits are to cease on this day. Only reflection, only expectation, only reverence and awe are to be the verbs of the day. All eyes should be on the centre of the camp. All anticipating the complete refresh that was taking place for them in that location. All having humble and seeking hearts. All clinging by faith to what is taking place as they looked on. From our Christian perspective, does that sound familiar? And third, we have the sacrifices. For the sake of time, I'll focus on the goats. One is sacrificed. And the mingled blood of the priest's bull and the people's goat is sprinkled everywhere. But it starts individually with the mercy seat. The high priest would venture behind that sacred curtain twice. He'd fill the room with smoke to obscure his vision. And that was for the priest's own sake. God still had to remain a mystery to a degree. He could be tangibly present, but not tangibly seen. We know from Exodus, Moses caught caught the back end of God as he passed by and it freaked him out. He could barely stand. A glimpse of the unfiltered holiness of God would be a terminal thing for mere humans. And then the glory of God would fill that small room in the smoky haze and the high priest would sprinkle blood towards the mercy seat. Blood offered in the very presence of God. Then he would walk backwards. The floor of the throne room where he just dared to stand sprinkled blood. Then the holy place and its altar where he and his companions administered their sacred duties even while floored themselves. Then the outside altar and the tent of meeting itself everything. The other goat is held and confessed on by the high priest. Even though he, well, hopefully, hadn't done the things he confesses, he in this setting bears the guilt of the whole people. He did this in the most holy place, offering blood for the sin of all, and now he bears the guilt as he confesses as well. And this guilt is then transferred to what is translated in English, the scapegoat. And this goat is sent to the wilderness. It is solemnly led out of the camp. First by leaving the clean tabernacle through the unclean camp into the most unclean place, the wilderness, the space outside, 
and it's released there. And there the scapegoat bears the sin of the camp and is released to whatever becomes of anything left to its own devices in the wilderness. Unless the goat was incredibly crafty, you can imagine how that might end up. Once the blood has been offered before the mercy seat first then throughout the tabernacle and once the scapegoat had been released to the wilderness... We read in this chapter that the guilt of every sin was removed from the community. Every sin. Now, put your hand up if you've been here in the church for more than a year. Put your hand up if you have been with us at least since last September. That's the date of the uh, Yom Kippur day that this is celebrated, even in Jewish circles now. If you've been around that sort of time, you'll know that we have done none of the above, ever. That's because Christ completely fulfilled the requirements of the Day of Atonement. One time for all time. Hebrews 9 tells it this way, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all. By his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Christ, God in the flesh, not a descendant of Aaron, came and did the work of the high priest. Instead of the bulls and the the goats and their blood that would only suffice to a point, Christ offered his own blood directly to the Father. Removing the guilt of all who would direct their gaze on Him. Isaiah 53.12 tells us the suffering servant who is Christ would bear the sins of many. The scapegoat image is being pointed to in the work of Christ. And we know that Christ was taken outside of the city outside of the camp and punished for sin. Philippians 2 continues the canonic servant idea. Christ being equal with God but choosing to make himself a servant who would be obedient even to the cross. Our high priest lived out the way of the linen garments. Not just at Calvary but in all that he did. And although the tabernacle became a temple and then a second temple, there was always a curtain. And Matthew 27, 51 tells us that as Christ took his final breath, the temple curtain 
in Jewish tradition, said to be at least a few inches thick. Tore in two from top to bottom. As far as Christianity is concerned, the most holy place was made accessible to all through the offering of Christ. There would be no more need for a mercy seat after that moment. And the definition of priesthood just got a lot more broader. And finally, I'll leave the final word to Christ in relation to the way that people should respond to the work of atonement that occurred at Calvary. Matthew 16, 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The Christian response to the work of atonement through Christ has similar tones as the response of Israel on the Day of Atonement. To follow, to be in Christ, we deny ourselves. As Israel was told, deny yourselves on the Day of Atonement. Stop what you're doing and look expectantly and with anticipation to that which has been done for you. Your great high priest has both offered his own blood before the very throne of God and has borne the sin which was led to the wilderness for punishment. And Jesus goes further, take up your own cross. Identify with Christ in every way. In this life, that looks like kenotic, humble service. Losing anything that makes us a big shot when it comes to God. Humbling ourselves before the mighty God. Identifying with Him and identifying with His ministry. And identify that there's a probability of suffering. And drop everything and follow me. Where He goes, so do we. Where He's at work, we take the tools also. When he speaks, we operate as his mouthpiece. And it's his right to ask that. Another word for atonement is ransom. Jesus paid it, therefore we were a purchase. We're bought with a price according to Paul. So this atonement is not just a clean up for us. It's not just a hard drive clean up. It's a transaction to acquire us. We are His through the act of His atonement. Like the ancients who were redeemed in Egypt, we too have been redeemed. And as redeemed people, it affects the way we live. We are to honour the Lord in all that we do. Let's stop there and let's pray.